so we're, we're walking through this thing we're calling Spark when faith comes alive. And if we were together a week ago, uh, you may remember that we, we discussed the reality that pain has the ability to awaken, awaken us. It really does. It has the ability to wake us up if we listen to what it's trying to say. And if that's the case, we explored something that, somebody that we're going to continue to walk with named Nehemiah. But if, if pain awakens faith within us when we listen to it, uh, prayer is the oxygen that blows onto the spark. And it creates it into something stronger. Prayer has the capacity to, to enable something to grow within our own heart. In a way, I think very few things can. I actually, believe it or not, remember the first moments I uttered my first prayer. And I remember them because, um, well, they were, they were uttered in a moment, uh, I could say they were shrieked in a moment of uh, somewhat terror and fear. I was a, a sophomore in high school, and I was on the JV soccer team. Actually, I was on the varsity team, and the older guys, uh, had, they were going out, and uh, it was a Friday night. We were making our way down to the peninsula where you could ride go-karts and play video games and arcades and do all kinds of things that you know, teenagers like to do. And, and so I remember I said, they asked me if I wanted to come along. I said, yeah, definitely. And we got in, piled into a minivan. We drove down there, and, and my friend and I were in the back. We were the youngest ones. We were in the back, and we had a good time. And, and along the way, I started to notice that one of the older guys was a little bit, um, he, 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 liked, he, he liked conflict. Yeah, predominantly, he liked to create it. And, uh, and, and I didn't like that so much. So I kind of kept my distance, you know, and it just did my own thing. And then we piled back into the minivan. And we're driving way back home. And it's later at night. And this guy's in the minivan with us. And he, he and his friends started trying to create conflict on the road, uh, which is not smart, you know. Um, and so he starts kind of yelling out to different people. And for whatever reason, uh, he, he ended up yelling to the wrong car. Uh, and they roll down their window, and they start jabbing back. My friend and I are just kind of sitting in the back, just kind of quiet, wondering what's going on, just thinking, hey, I just want to get home. Um, and, then, and then we heard the word that uh, you, know, you just don't want to hear in a situation like that. Somebody yelled in our minivan, gun. And immediately, everyone kind of just dropped underneath the seats. And so I did the same. And somebody was underneath me, so I pulled them out and uh, <laughs> made sure I went underneath. You know, and there were some floor mats. I pulled those up, too. And I just thought, I just need to get as low as I possibly can. You know, And, and, and then I, I felt the bodies on top of me and the seat on top of me. I felt it. And we're driving. And, and in those moments, and here's the deal. My family, we didn't, we didn't go to church. I didn't grow up religious beyond the two adventures at Easter and Christmas You know, that we would make. I didn't, I didn't grow up hearing about God. It wasn't really part of our um, ethos as a family. It wasn't really part of the environment. But I remember in those moments of, um, you know, absolute heroism, uh, <laughs> yelling out, please, no, God. Jesus, no, I'm too young to die. Please, let me live. I'm sorry. And here's the thing, is in my group of friends, I was the one who, who, when things were tense or whatever, I would crack the joke, you know, and we weren't the greatest soccer team, so I was the one who found the humor in not being the great soccer team, you know, and, 
And so I remember just saying this kind of out of desire to make people laugh, you know, it's like even though, and, and, and yeah, as we're driving, I had never heard gunshots, but I did hear two pops. And I, I don't know if, 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 it, if they were, if they weren't, I don't know. I was convinced they were. And so just, this kind of just came out of me, you know. Please, God, no. Jesus, no. I'm, I'm too young today. I'm sorry. Let me live. And I was silent. You know, I remember after kind of the driver made his way off of where we were, and they drove away and sat there and kind of just settled things down. Everybody else in the minivan started laughing and started saying, did you, did you hear Lewis? <laughs> Did you hear? The guy was praying, right? And at first I was like, yeah. And, and then inside of me, I realized, wait a minute, I, I, I was praying. Um, and this weird thing happened where I started to recognize an inherent inclination to cry out to God. I, I didn't know who I was crying out to. I didn't know how this whole thing works, but, but something inside of me wanted to believe he existed. And something inside of me not just wanted to believe he existed, but desperately desired that he would hear me and that he would actually answer that prayer. It was a legitimate, it started as a joke, but it was really sincere. And I remember that. I remember that. And I remember years later when I found myself actually in this building where I came to know who I actually cried out to on that night. That I found myself in a group, a small community group, and we were walking and talking. We started talking about prayer. And I remember the, the group leader, I remember pulling him aside and sharing the story. You know, this happened to me, actually, where this is a weird thing, where I, I, I was joking, but then afterwards when everyone else was laughing, internally I, I realized I want to know who I was crying out to. And I remember what he said to me. He said, you know, Lewis, you may not have been taking God seriously when you said that prayer, but God certainly took you seriously. And I share that because, um, you know, I think I'm convinced that uh, we have a natural inclination toward prayer. It's as natural to us as breathing, but we don't know it. Because we may, may or may not know who we're praying to. We may not altogether understand what it looks like or how it works. But you know when it shows up? It shows up when we feel helpless, when we feel overwhelmed. It shows up when we uh, sense we have no control and we are, have no other options. And so what do we have to lose? Might as well pray. It shows up when we face struggles and challenges that we think are insurmountable. We have an inclination to God. And it was Henry Nouwen who said, to pray is to walk in the full light of God, to say simply without holding back, I am human, you are God. At its core, it's a language that allows our heart to express itself to acknowledge who we are, to acknowledge who God is. And a lot of times it expresses itself like the exhale of an anxious heart under duress. And those are great moments to pray, certainly. They may be the only moments some of us pray. But I think that prayer has the ability to become a true source of strength for us. Listen, if we, if we are able to understand 
what a resource we have. And it's something that Nehemiah modeled for us. And I think it's worth noting, if you open up your handout, we'll walk through a passage in which he exhibits what it might look like to pray through a spark or over a pain point. And we discussed a week ago, this, this, this memoir was written about 450 years before the coming of Christ in a particular period of time in Israel's history where the Medes and the Persians, the modern day Iraq and Iran, by the way, had removed the Israelites out of their land and scattered them throughout the known world. They were on the other side of that scattering, that exile, as they call it. And they, a group of them were given permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah ends up getting word as he is sitting uh, in, in a rather uh, well, well-off position. He hears from a group of people coming from Jerusalem and he gets news, the terrible news that he discovers after asking how they're doing is that the, the people in Jerusalem are actually in extreme vulnerability. They have no wall. And we talked about this in depth. A wall, no wall in those days meant uh, imminent danger. It meant being exposed without any recourse of any defense. Uh, Forget chances of prosperity. They were um, vulnerable constantly. And when he heard the news, it so affected him that he wrote this down in his memoir in verse 4. And you read this at the top. It says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned. I fasted. I withheld food for myself. And I prayed to the God of heaven I, I allowed this pain to penetrate my exterior and express itself. I mourned for days. And we have to understand this. It's important to know. Nehemiah was 800 miles away from Jerusalem when, he's, when he hears this news. He's sitting in the perch of power. He's in the shadow of the most powerful person in the known world at that time. But he was expendable too. He was the king's cupbearer. That is the last line of defense to make sure the king was not exposed to danger in any of his meals. He was sitting in the shadow of power, but having power and sitting in the shadow of power are two very different things. And without question, listen, the easier thing to do would have been to ignore the circumstances his people found themselves in or to at least surrender himself to the reality there's nothing that can be done. Yes, he felt the pain. Yes, he had solidarity with them. But to do something about it, well, that's a different deal. And it would, no one would have blamed Nehemiah if he simply said, you know what? I mourned and I prayed and I grieved over this. I didn't eat. And that was it. We'd understand that. We'd understand it because to do anything would be to risk everything. And yet what Nehemiah ended up doing demonstrates, he, he contradicts, listen, it is a hard thing to find someone in a high position in our culture, in our world, who has a soft and tender heart for God. There's something about that combination that is rare. To be at the pinnacle and yet soft and available to God. It's not common. And it is what Nehemiah ends up demonstrating. His prayer, which he writes down, we're told in verse 5, he says, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, that that is his relationship that will never quit, 
with those who love him and obey his commandments. And he starts off, you know what he starts off doing? In the midst of recognizing how challenging this is, he declares, he acknowledges God's greatness. He, he places everything in perspective. Oh, Lord, God of heaven. And what he doesn't do, what he doesn't do is deny how difficult his challenge is. This situation, an entire city completely exposed of those he loves and he cares for. And what he doesn't do is deny how hard that is. You know what he does? He, he basically declares there's no challenge that is bigger than you, God. He reminds himself there's no challenge that's more powerful. Uh, the risks are massive. No question about it. it. I read once that a mountain climber put it this way. Mountains don't kill people. They just sit there. Because it's in the attempt to overcome the mountain that the danger increases. It's in the attempt of scaling the challenge that one exposes itself, oneself, to the risks. Yeah. Nehemiah... He was well aware of how hard this was. But on the other, on the other hand, you know what he, what he also is declaring? He, you're getting the sense that his, um, his challenge is large, yes. But God is mightier. And this must have felt like an enormous mountain. But God, you're the God of heaven. You're bigger than this. Listen to my prayer, he says in verse 6. Look down and see me praying day and night for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. It's a rather remarkable thing that Nehemiah ends up doing in this. You know what he does? He ends up taking responsibility for the situation that his people find himself in. And you could say, you could say, what responsibility did he have? What did he do? But somehow, Nehemiah ends up take, moving to the place of owning a degree of culpability. He acknowledged he had a role to play. No matter how small we might think it is, he acknowledged he had a role to play. In essence, he is not, listen, you know what he's not doing? It's just a great lesson. He's coming before the Lord honestly and earnestly, yes, but he's not shifting blame. He's not looking at what uh, is rather tempting for many of us to do, looking at what others should or could do in the midst of this trial. He's acknowledging he has capacities to affect change. And he acknowledges he had, had made choices in his past. And somewhere along those choices, he's rea realizing, I have a part to play. And I own it. I own it. This is where Nehemiah shows sincere, humble, courageous expression. This is what it looks like. Reminds me of... Um, a parable Jesus once said to a group of people who were wanting to know what prayer was like and how, how, how does this work with God? And he says, you know, two people walked into the temple. One of them was, uh, was familiar with the ways of the world, very secular. But he walked into the temple and he, he, upon walking in, he went down to his knees and he started to beat his chest and he started to cry out, oh God. He wouldn't even lift his head. He would just cry out, oh God, please have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. 
He says, and then there was another guy, another man walked into to the temple and that person was religiously trained, understood scripture, understood ways of faith. And that person stood aside where that man was beating his chest on the ground. And he, he prayed in essence, it's a paraphrase, in essence, thank you God for not making me like him. Thank you for making me right. Thank you for the different ways. And he started listing all the different ways he behaved right. Jesus said that both of them were done praying and they left the temple. And then he asked this question, who do you think was justified in the eyes of God? Well, the man who asked for mercy. The man who owned himself. The point being, humility opens doors. Humility, when it comes to God, humility opens doors. Nothing else can. It creates access to God in a way nothing else can. And so he declares God's greatness, not denying the reality of the challenge. Then he comes in humble, earnest, sincere. And we're told that as he's doing this, you know what he does? He says in verse 8, please remember that you, you told, what you told your servant Moses. Remember what you said. And then he quotes God to God. I mean, Nehemiah, he knows what he's doing. Look, he says, if you, and then he, he, write, he quotes something that might seem foreign to us, but he, he quotes Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. He says, remember when you told Moses, God, that if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations? That happened. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, which is what is currently happening, I will bring you back. You said this. I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. You remember that? And the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. We are here now together. In a way, Nehemiah is quoting these two passages, these two different points. And what he is doing is he's exhibiting the principle. Listen, Nehemiah was familiar enough with the scriptures that he was able to quote God to himself and to ask God to make good on that promise. It's a remarkable thing. He claimed it and he took the Lord's word at his word. And he says, listen, it's, um, some of us, we might be sitting here and we might be thinking, I just want to know like, where, where certain books are in the Bible. That's where I'm at. I'm just working on reading a verse a day. And that's great. That's, we, we all start there. All of us. But over time, you know what this is showing us? That as we become more familiar with his scriptures, and as we become more familiar with his word, you know what ends up happening? We can come before him with an increasing sense of confidence and assurance. Because what Nehemiah is modeling is that he had come to know something through his knowing his word. He had come to know and understand his heart, God's heart. And we, we must not rush past this. He knew God's desires for his people, and he lined up with what God wanted to do. And in lining up with what God wanted to do, Nehemiah was essentially joining God. It wasn't Nehemiah's idea. It was God's. And he basically was saying, listen, um, I want what you want, God. In his prayer, I want what you want. I want what you want. 
I've discovered what you want. And there are some things, listen, God wants to do certain things in our lives. It's clear. He wants to bring health, life, joy, strength, the ability to move forward. He wants to do this in our lives. But a lot of times, you know what he does? He waits for us to understand what he wants to do so that we can join up with him and declare with Nehemiah, I want what you want for my life. That's what I want. I'm owning this over my own life. I want it. And Nehemiah, he, he does the courageous thing of calling God out on what God said he would do and asking him to complete it. Uh, we know how to do this. We know how to do this relationally. When someone asks us to do something and then they don't do it, right? And then the quote starts coming back to mind, right? But you said, and I quote, right? Here's the deal. When we, when we hear God promise something to us, he doesn't hold it over us, and he never behaves inconsistent with it. He invites us to experience it and to own it. This is, this is the key difference. Listen, I want what you want, God. I want, in fact, by the end of here, he says, oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. By the time he's done with this prayer, Nehemiah moves from a place of being overwhelmed, grieved, in pain, withholding food from himself, and he gets to the place of saying, I am willing to take a risk, but I need you to help me. I need you to move with me. By the time all is said and done, you know what? He was available to meet the need he discovered. And he was willing to step into the challenge. It's a remarkable, fascinating exploration of how prayer can actually change us from the inside out. Because with his motivation, humility, his understanding of God's capacity, something actually did happen. We know, we're not going to explore it right now, but we know that King Artaxerxes actually did respond to Nehemiah favorably. And we know that Nehemiah received the resources and the time and the proper uh, defenses to be able to build up the wall around Jerusalem. We know this. We know this. And if King Artaxerxes was the one who signed the check, it was because God, who owns all things, heard Nehemiah, moved on his behalf. Not... I don't know exactly what is sparking within our soul. I don't know if it's pain. I don't know if it's agitation or desire for something. I don't know if it's a dream. I don't know what it might be, but if something is becoming awakened, prayer is the oxygen that blows it into a strong fire. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I think has a couple things for us to, uh, to consider. See, praying over our spark, whatever that might be, it, it embeds endurance into our soul. It, it forces the muscle of remaining under the pressure to develop. 
the pressure may not relent, but as we pray over whatever it is we're facing, the capacity to remain increases. Because it is a challenging thing to desire more, but feel resistance every step of the way. To have an idea or an ideal, and yet it, reality looks like it's in complete opposition. Uh, to know that something needs to be fixed or addressed, created, improved, but then to feel incapable of doing anything with it, that feeling, that tension, you know what it can do? It can actually destroy us. Or it can make us stronger. It can make us stronger if we allow our response to become one of crying out to God. One of asking him for grace and mercy. And that is why prayer is so crucial. It is so key to a life journey with God. Because it's important to know, listen, prayer causes us, you know what it does? It causes us to wait on him. It, it, it conveys, in, in our conveying of our desires, we learn, you know, how to pace our days according to his timing. It is not unique to want an immediate solution. It's not. Everyone wants that. But it teaches us when we pray, when we convey our desires, our frustrations, maybe even our anger points to him. You know what it does? It teaches us to trust him. In the midst of our desiring immediate solution, it deepens our capacity to recognize great things were never built overnight. Things worth celebrating always take time, no matter how fast technology gets. There are certain things that require the need to stick with it. That'll never go away. And prayer builds our ability to endure through the trial. Uh, Paul had this to say to a group of believers in Philippi and Thessalonica, but he said it in two different ways. Firstly, he says, don't worry about anything. I asked him to put this up there. Instead, pray about everything. And tell God what you need and thank him for what he has already done. In a different way, he said it a little bit more shortly, more to the point, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Does that mean never stop praying 24 hours a day, even in your sleep, pray, in your dream, pray? No. It, it could mean something like this. It could mean that as you pray, you will not cease. That as you worry, you should pray and you will continue. That in your anxiety, when you pray, you will be reminded of all he has done for you. That as you are facing a trial and a struggle and you pray, something happens inside your soul. He may not deliver the situation. The circumstance may not change, but he makes himself available. And something of his Holy Spirit infuses us and it reminds us of hope and life and motivation. And you know what happens is, listen, the eternal one, the one who has eternal fuel for our soul is able to step into our temporary struggle, our temporary mood, our temporary pain, our temporary, our season of life that we might be struggling through. And we are reminded you are bigger, you are stronger you can outlast this, you can help me you can give me endurance I will not cease as I pray and when we are tempted and when we are weakened, listen, our ability to have a conversation with God that is honest and earnest yes, frustrated maybe yes, filled with pain, he doesn't shy away he shows up to the humble prayer. And we find ourselves with the capacity to take one step more.
And as we do that, we start to discover that prayer, praying over our spark, it starts to help us clarify a plan. It gives us the ability to clarify a plan. It's been said there is nothing, nothing so small that God is not interested in it. There is nothing so big that he cannot help us with it. Uh, We must not hesitate to be specific in our requests. To be specific. Um, Because you know what? When we pray over something and we build endurance, it gives us the ability to avoid the mistake. Listen, haste makes mistakes. Reactions makes things worse many times. But the capacity to slow down, because prayer, you know what didn't happen, what we're not told in Nehemiah, is that somehow he received a plan. We don't know that. It's never mentioned. But we know this, and it's not to say it's not possible. It just doesn't normally happen. It's not typical. What normally happens is that when we pray, when we lay our burdens at his feet, when we bring our frustrations and our pains and our desires before him, it allows us to alleviate stress and anxiety. And it gives us the ability to unburden ourselves, and peace and stability starts to make itself known in our soul. And it starts to guard us and protect us. It eliminates or at least reduces hasty decisions. And it allows us to think. Because faith in action is never irrational. It's never blind. It has logic. And it gives us the capacity to think through how we're going to move forward and maneuver and respond. And it gives us the ability to consider. Listen what Solomon said. The simple believes everything, but the prudent, the faith-filled man or woman who looks down the road, that is what prudence means, to, to have foresight. That person, they think through their steps. They develop a plan. They have a strategy. They're not mindless. No. In, in, in What does this look like? It looks like that I'm convinced that when we invite God in and we remind ourselves of his greatness and we let him know of our desires and we involve him in our decision-making, you know what happens? He meets us in our thinking, in our faith-filled thinking, not in denial and not in utter hopelessness, but in faith-filled thinking. He gives us the capacity to be able to say, Lord, here is my plan. Will you please guide me? Here's what I'm thinking. Will you please help me? Will you please give me success as I am thinking through what it is that you are asking me to do? I want what you want. I want what you desire for my life. And so here's my plan of how to put it in action. Will you please show me the way? Will you please give me favor? Will you please be kind to me? Will you help me and strengthen me? Will you guide me? I'm going to listen to people, other people who love you and who I trust. And I'm going to invite them into the process and seek counsel from them. Will you speak through them, please? As I read your word, will you speak to me, please? I ask you, give me the ability to develop a plan, clarify what one step forward looks like. And as we do that, you know what we discover? We discover that praying over our spark gives us the courage to respond 
And we may start overwhelmed. We may start grieved. We may start in utter pain. We might feel ruined. But in, in that place, when we turn that over to God and we invite him in, you know what happens? Something starts to occur. And this, this is why I love verse 11. He says, oh, Lord, after calling on God's promises, he says, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. This is about you, God. And what you want to do, please grant me success by making the king favorable to me, put kindness in his heart toward me. You know what he does by the end? You know what he discovers? That as he is mulling this over, as he is grieving, as he is thinking, as he is praying, he's realizing maybe he is the answer to his prayer. And maybe he's the one who actually has to move forward. And maybe he's the one who has to risk. And maybe he's the one who's supposed to solve something. Maybe he may not do everything. No, I need you, God. But I understand you have a role for me to play. And now that I'm reminded of your faithfulness and of your love and of your grace, I know you will not leave me nor forsake me. And so I have the courage to say, all right, then help me. Help me respond. Help me. Help me move forward. Because, listen, not every prayer means that God invites us to, um, to be the answer. But it does mean every prayer will mean God invites us to play a role. Not every prayer will change the circumstances around us. But every prayer sincerely offered to God will mean our soul will be altered. Our inner being will be strengthened. And we will discover what Jesus said in Isaiah. God said this about Jesus, his servant. He says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A little flame that's vulnerable in the wind and it's about to die. God said, my servant, Jesus, he will not let it be blown out. No, he will um, he'll breathe it back to life. He'll, he'll speak life into it. He'll put oxygen around it. He'll build up protection around it. And he'll let that flame burn and increase. What is that flame? What is that spark that God is trying to ignite inside of us? What is that, that tender wick? What is that pain point, that area in our lives that we think maybe it's dying away, maybe that's the answer we need to let it go? Desire, dream. What we need to do is not give up on it. We need to focus on his ability to guide us, strengthen us, to give us a path, to empower us, to never leave us nor forsake us, and we need to blow over that spark. God, I invite you, help me. God, I desperately need you, help me. Give me, give me grace and mercy. Blow onto the fire inside of my soul. Burn it. May, may it come alive. And may this little spark, this tiny little thing that I desire to see happen in my life, may it grow in its conviction and its warmth and the bitter cold of fear and the challenge and the loneliness that I feel will be warmed by what? By his breath of life inside of our soul and the empowering conviction inside of our heart that will never relent and will give us the courage to move forward one step at a time. 
and we allow faith to awaken. And when we do that, let me tell you something. No wind can snuff it. No resistance can put it out. No darkness can overcome the light. It's a beautiful thing. God longs to do in our lives. In fact, some of us, we might be right there. And we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have our time of giving and our closing song. But we're going to have some people available. And we're going to have some people available that are going to have some lanyards and just simple sign that says prayer. If you have a spark, you want somebody to help you pray for, pray with, pray over, we want you to go see them. We want you to receive what God may want to give to you. A strengthened soul. So we're going to do the very thing we've been talking about. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. We're going to receive our time of giving. But Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are the God who takes us absolutely seriously. That no amount of requests, big or small, is outside of your attention. That an earnest, humble, sincere cry to you is one you respond to. You're able to step into our lives. And I pray, God, that you would, you would meet with us. I pray for any of us in this room, or maybe even online, that we maybe feel like that, that weak wick. Holy Spirit, would you breathe afresh on us? Would you blow our spark into a strong fire of strength and conviction and courage? Give us clarity one step forward. Remind us of your goodness. You are for us. You are never against us. Your love is steadfast, never forsaking. We pray for, for you to do your work inside of us, Lord. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.